tonight. What a great turnout for our study through Deuteronomy. And we're in Deuteronomy chapter 17. You know, I have really enjoyed these studies. And I was thinking that when we got done with Deuteronomy, that what we would do is go back and maybe do Matthew or one of the Gospels and then come back into the Old Testament. But, you know, I'm so excited about, I mean, we've been walking with the children of Israel now for 45 weeks. I think this is the 45th, 46th study. And I got to see these guys get on into the promised land. You know what I mean? So I'm thinking that maybe we'll wait to the end of Joshua. When we get to the end of Joshua, then we'll go back and take one of the New Testament gospels and, and break it up. But I'm excited to have you here tonight. Lord, bless our Bible study by your spirit. Through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Once there was a golfer that really needed to make a putt to stay ahead of his competitors. And as he was looking over his putt, a stranger walked up and said, Would you be willing to give, oh, a quarter of your sex life to sink that putt? The guy thought for a minute, he said, Well, sure, why not? His 40-foot putt rolled right into the cup. Amazing. Well, later in the round, he had a four iron into a par five and really needed to make up a few shots on the competition. And oh, if he could just eagle this hole. And so the same stranger walks up and he asks him, he said, Would you be willing to give another quarter of your sex life to make an eagle on this hole? The guy thought for a minute. He said, Oh, why not? And so he launched his shot. It hit right on the green, bounced twice, and rolled right into the hole. Amazing. Well, on the final hole, it was a par three. The golfer was two shots down. The other guys were on track for a bogey, and he needed a hole-in-one to win. And so just as he addressed the ball, the stranger shows up again, and he asks him, he said, would you be willing to give up the rest of your sex life to make this hole-in-one? Well, the golfer, I mean a real intense competitor, he couldn't stand to lose. And so he said, well, okay. And he hit his 180-yard shot straight for the flag. It bounced on the green, rolled right into the cup, a winning ace. Well, as the golfer was walking off the course, the same stranger appeared by his side. And he said, hey, we've got to talk. He said, let me introduce myself. I'm the devil. And now you have no sex life left whatsoever. Well, the golfer smiled at him, and he reached out his hand, and he said, hey, nice to meet you. My name's Father O'Malley. (laughs) (laughs) oh my the moral of the story is some sacrifices are no sacrifice at all this is what Moses addresses in Deuteronomy chapter 17 verse 1 you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or a sheep which has any blemish or defect For that is an abomination to the Lord your God. We'll donate to the goodwill that old sweater that's threadbare and that dress that's out of fashion, stuff that we'd throw away anyway. But when we give a sacrifice to God, he wants our best, not our leftovers. As I said, some sacrifices are not sacrifices at all. Once there was a little boy who had two $5 bills in his hand And his mom suggested that he give one of them to God. But he was having a hard time to decide which one. As he walked to church that Sunday, one of the bills slipped out of his hand and went right down the storm drain. 
The little boy looks up to heaven and he says, God, I'm sorry I lost your $5 bill. <laughs> hey, when you give to God an offering or a sacrifice, by all means, make sure that you give him your best. Verse 2 tells us, If there is found among you within any of your gates which the Lord your God gives you, a man or a woman who has been wicked in the sight of the Lord your God, in transgressing his covenant, who has gone and served other gods and worshipped them, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. Astrology, the occult, this is a serious issue. And before you accuse, you should first check it out. And if it is indeed true and certain that such an abomination has been committed in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has committed that wicked thing and shall stone to death that man or woman with stones. The occult was serious business and God sought to exterminate the occultist. Today, we live in a different age. In the Old Testament, an incorrigible or an unchangeable person was eliminated. Today, though, there is no such person. For the blood of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit today can soften the hardest of hearts. Aren't we glad this doesn't hold true today? Some of us were occultists. Some of us were into these dark things. But today, God deals with the sinner differently. He saves, not stones. He loves us, and he has the power to change us if we'll give him our hearts. But notice this, his attitude toward the sin hasn't changed. God still hates these occult practices. Any attempt by our part to gain supernatural power or guidance apart from God is absolutely forbidden in Scripture. Verse 6 tells us, Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. I mean, a death sentence was never prompted by just one man's word. It required two or three witnesses. It required corroborating testimony. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 9, Paul tells us that the same thing is true of an accusation that is brought before an elder. It also needs to be substantiated and validated by two or three witnesses. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people, so you shall put away the evil person from among you. <laughs> the witnesses were the first ones to launch the stones. I suppose this was a reality check. If you're a witness in a death penalty trial and you know you're going to be asked to pull the switch, you may be a little bit more careful with your testimony. That was the idea. Verse 8, if a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge between degrees of guilt for bloodshed, between one judgment or another, or between one punishment or another, matters of controversy within your gates... Then you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. And you shall come to the priests, the Levites, and to the judge there in those days and inquire of them. They shall pronounce upon you the sentence of judgment. The priests, in other words, served as a court of appeals. Town leaders could bring difficult cases up to the tabernacle to be tried by the priests. 
You shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you in that place which the Lord chooses. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they order you. According to the sentence of the law in which they instruct you, according to the judgments which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left from the sentence which they pronounce upon you. If you appeal your case to the priest, then you should be willing to be bound by their decision. On occasion, people will come to the pastors and the elders of our church to settle a dispute. And it's our duty to mediate in these matters. But once we do, it's both parties' duty to then live by that decision. If the man doesn't, if the man who acts presumptuously and will not heed the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall put away the evil person from Israel and all the people shall hear in fear and no longer act presumptuously. In other words, if you seek the priest's advice and then don't take heed to it, you're sentenced to death. And I'm sure if that was instituted today, it would certainly reduce the pastor's counseling load. <laughs> hey, if you come to me and seek my advice and I give it to you and you don't receive it, I'm not going to advocate the death penalty, but I do wish you wouldn't have wasted my time, okay? If you've been following the news lately, you know that in recent weeks, the folks in Washington have been in a furor over the wiretaps that were ordered by President Bush. It seems the president has been eavesdropping in on overseas phone calls of suspected terrorists, and he's done it without the normal court authorization. The White House argues that we're in a state of war and the commander-in-chief has the right to take special precautions to protect the country. And thus, Bush has remained within his constitutional prerogatives. But the president's critics see his actions as a gross expansion of executive powers. The prez is overstepping his bounds. Now, I'll leave it up to you and the pundits to resolve the debate. But the notion of a leader trying to broaden his authority is nothing new. It is as old as Deuteronomy. For this is the issue that's dealt with next in the last half of Deuteronomy 17. Verse 14, For when we come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it, and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, now, it's interesting, here Moses anticipates a development that God never desired. God preferred to be the king of Israel. But once in the promised land, Israel looked around at the neighboring nations and like them wanted a man to sit on their throne. The Hebrews thought it would be easier to trust someone they could see rather than trust in the God that they couldn't see. And so God gave them what they wanted. Sometimes that's the worst thing that can happen. <laughs> I've discovered this firsthand. God give you what you wanted. And for the next 450 miserable years, sinful men sat on the throne of Israel when God could have been their king. The nation swapped virtue for visibility. <laughs> Always a mistake. But even when the choice was made, God in his foreknowledge knew that this would happen. And so he gave Moses instructions 
for limiting and regulating the monarchy. Verse 15, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. In other words, the king must be Hebrew by birth. I think the president of the United States also has to be born an American. And the king was forbidden to accumulate three items. Horses or a cavalry. Wives or a harem. And silver and gold or financial reserves. Three things the king couldn't load up on. Broncos, babes, and bucks. And thus God put limits on executive powers. Evidently, God doesn't believe in big government. Verse 16 tells us, But he shall not multiply horses for himself, here are the broncos, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. In times of war, God wanted the king to trust in him and in his power, not in the cavalry. Horses represented military machinery. And the confidence of the king was to rest in God, not in his own arsenal. He says, neither shall he multiply wives for himself. In times of peace, God wanted the king to strengthen his ties with heaven, not with foreign nations. You see, in the ancient world, when two kings signed a treaty, they ratified it by giving a daughter in marriage to the other king. That way you're less likely to attack your in-laws. Well, sometimes. <laughs> Thus, a king built his harem through these political alliances. But again, this was not God's desire for Israel. The king's confidence was supposed to be in his relationship with God, not in his political alliances. The greatest danger of the king marrying pagan women was her influence. Moses says, lest his heart turn away. For pagan women usually worship pagan gods and often these foreign queens these princesses would lead the king astray and into idolatry king ahab married the daughter of the king of phoenicia and to ratify their covenant she gave to him her daughter a woman named jezebel to be his wife and jezebel that wicked gal indoctrinated the northern kingdom in the worship of baal we'll get to that later so the king was forbidden to accumulate broncos, babes, and finally bucks, verse 17. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. In wartime, the temptation was horses. In peacetime, the temptation was wives. In all times, the temptation is money. We tend to trust in our money more than in our God. Shame on us. You know, Billy Graham once said, the three greatest dangers to every pastor are power, women, and money. And that's true. Most pastors are brought down by one of the three. But husbands, too, need to be careful. For men, you are the king of your castle. Don't you fall prey to the lure of power or the lust of sex or the love of money. Don't forget Moses' warnings. Broncos, babes, and bucks, beware. 
Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. I love this. I picture in my mind the king in his royal robe sitting in his elegant palace arrayed with the fringes of the monarchy sitting there painstakingly copying the word of God down in a book. This was God's commandment for the king. This was not a job that he was allowed to hire out. This was not a task that he could delegate to some scribe or some subordinate. He was to copy for himself the scripture with his own hand. Every king was supposed to copy down his own copy of the scripture. I love that. The king was supposed to become personally acquainted with the Bible. And this is true of anyone who wants to lead God's people. Dad, you cannot delegate Bible study or note-taking to your wife or to your pastor if you want to lead your family. God wants you to be personally absorbed in His Word. Here is the point. God wants His Word in the heart of His leaders. And it shall be with Him, and He shall read it all the days of His life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart, the heart of the king, may not be lifted above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, and that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Rather than read his press clippings, he should read God's word and his heart would not exalt itself above his brethren. He would remember that the king was not above the law. His heart was not to be exalted. God's word applied to prince and pauper alike. Your Bible is a one-size-fits-all book. Well, chapter 18, verse 1, reiterates what's been covered before. The priests will not receive an allotment of land when the nation crosses over the Jordan River. Their inheritance will be the Lord. So rather than a farm, they'll serve the Lord in the tabernacle. Rather than farm the land, they serve the Lord. They're going to be fed through Israel's offerings. And of the sacrifices, they get three parts. They get a shoulder, they get a cheek or a flank, and they get the stomach. And from the tithes, they also get a portion of wine and fleece. You can read about that in the first few verses. Verse 9 tells us, When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. And this was a reference to that dreaded worship of Molech. You see, the name Molech can mean offering of man, and it was a reference to the child sacrifice associated with this idol. Molech had the face of an ox and the body of a man. He was a fertility god, and all kinds of lewd, perverse practices were carried on in his honor. And to appease this evil idol of the Canaanites, they would offer up one of their children. You see, the idol itself was made of hollowed-out brass. And the Canaanites would stoke it with wood and they would light a fire within the image. The heat, the metal would heat up until it was glowing hot. 
And then they would lay an innocent baby into Molech's outstretched arms. And the priests would beat their drums to drown out the screams of the little baby. Human sacrifice sounds so barbaric, doesn't it? Oh, far removed from our sophisticated modern culture. Until we begin to consider today's abortion industry. For today we use saline solution to burn our unborn to the God of sexual pleasure. And then a liberal media drowns out the silent screams of the murdered babies. We want the pleasure of sex without its responsibilities. In a saline abortion, the amniotic fluid is replaced with a highly concentrated salt solution. The child is literally poisoned to death. And the body ends up scorched and charred. Pictures will turn your stomach. And we think our society could not, could never tolerate child sacrifice. It happens every day. Well, Moses also warns against one who practices witchcraft. The modern version of witchcraft is now called Wicca. And its adherents claim to be white witches as opposed to black witches. Supposedly, they harness spiritual power and they use it for good. White witches deify nature. They believe in a life force that permeates all things. They're usually feminists and they worship Gaia, the earth goddess. But make no mistake about it, they reject and despise the one true God. God forbid anyone who practiced witchcraft. Also beware of the person who is a soothsayer, he says. This is an astrologer. He consults the stars for supernatural guidance. You know, it's sad, but three out of every four American newspapers carry a horoscope column. That's horrible. It's a tool of Satan. Satan's goal is to replace confidence in God with a sinister substitute. I'm telling you, I won't even read a fortune cookie. The little thing in the fortune cookie. I don't do that. That, that borders on soothsaying. On trying to get uh, divine guidance from uh, things other than God. I don't do that. He warns us of one who interprets omens. These are the tarot card readers and the palm readers and the crystal ball seers and the tea leaf readers. They're all forbidden. Or a sorcerer. This is the person who used drugs to connect spiritually. The sad truth is that they were not connecting with God, but with sinister, with satanic and demonic sources. Or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. Medium supposedly stood between the psychic world and the physical world and communicated with the dead. In reality, they're being manipulated by demons. And in our sophisticated day, we even have a television show called Medium. Hey, God takes all these practices seriously and he forbids them completely and absolutely. The Bible forbids any attempt to access supernatural power or to derive spiritual guidance apart from direct communication with God. Can I make that any clearer? Bypass the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, and it is forbidden. You are opening yourself up to demonic influences. Beware. 
He says, for all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. The people in the land they're about to inherit have been driven out. They're going to be conquered because of these abominations. The Hebrew word translated abomination means disgusting or abhorrent. The ultimate insult to God is to bypass him and ally oneself with a demon. And for God's people, his own people, to be guilty of this, well, nothing could be more repulsive. The Canaanites were driven out of the land for these crimes. And if Israel repeats these abominations, they too will receive a severe punishment. Moses says in verse 13, You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you will dispossess. Listen to soothsayers and diviners, but as for you... The Lord your God has not appointed such for you. Now, while Israel wandered in the wilderness, she had but one leader, Moses. But after the nation enters into the land of promise, and over the course of her history, she will develop three types of leaders. Kings, prophets, and priests. And it's interesting that Moses has something to say here about each of Israel's future forms of leadership. In chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, he has addressed kings. In chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, he has talked about the Levites and priests. And now, in verses 15 through 22, he speaks about prophets. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Moses was a prophet. He was a spokesman for God. But just before Moses dies, he predicts that God will send another prophet like himself. This other prophet will also be a Hebrew. This other prophet will also work miracles like Moses. He says, Him you shall hear according to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And he shall be that whatever will not hear, that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require of him. In Acts chapter 7, verse 37, you can look it up later. When Stephen gave his defense before the Jewish Sanhedrin, he said that Jesus was the prophet who Moses had predicted would come and be like him. In Acts chapter 3, Peter referred to Jesus as the prophet that Moses said would come. In John chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus told the Jews, If you believed Moses, you would believe in me, for he wrote of me. And where did Moses write of Jesus? Right here in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Jesus was the prophet like Moses. No one in the history of Israel ever rose to the stature of Moses except Jesus. In his commentary on Exodus, A.W. Pink lists 75 ways that Jesus was like Moses. Here are a few. Both were shepherds. Both fasted 40 days. As infants, both were attacked by tyrants and slaughtered, who slaughtered innocent kids. 
Moses turned water into blood. Jesus turned water into wine. Both were willing to die for the nation. Both interceded and God spared the people. Both were rejected by their brothers. Both were redeemers. Both occupied all three major Hebrew offices, prophet, priest, and king. And the list goes on and on and on. 75 different ways. Hebrews 3 brings up an interesting point. We're going to get to it in a few weeks. It makes it clear that Jesus was not only like Moses, but Jesus was far greater than Moses. Moses, despite all of his exploits and his tremendous character, was still God's servant, whereas Jesus, our Lord Jesus, was God's only son. Jesus was greater than Moses. Jesus was the true prophet, but false prophets will come, we're told. And the next few verses provide a couple of very simple tests on how you and I can discern a false prophet. Verse 20, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. If a prophet contradicts what God has already said in his word, or if he lures you into following after other gods, immediately he should be branded as a false prophet. Verse 21, And if you say in your heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord has spoken, has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, this is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. Here's the other way to discern a false prophet. Watch his track record. God doesn't make mistakes. God has a 100% success rate on his prophecies. Therefore, if a prophet continues to make false predictions, obviously he's a false prophet. Simple enough. The Jehovah's Witnesses said that Jesus would come in 1914. He didn't. So they said he'd come in 1975. He didn't come then either. Obviously, both predictions were bogus. I would say that the Jehovah's Witnesses are false prophets. Mormons, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, both said that God told them that there were men on the moon six feet tall and dressed like Quakers. We've been there. We didn't see them. I would say they were wrong and false prophets. In fact, you can fill several volumes with the false prophecies of the church of Latter-day Saints. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons are both false prophets. Don't trust what they teach. In chapter 19, verses 1 through 13, Moses repeats his instructions for the cities of refuge. We've talked about this before. When the Lord your God has cut off the nations whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall separate three cities for yourself in the midst of your land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Numbers 35 has already discussed these cities of refuge, and we were told that there were six, three on the east side of the Jordan, three on the west side of the Jordan. You shall prepare roads for yourself and divide into three parts the territory of your land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit 
that any manslayer may flee there. Jewish tradition tells us that the roads that ran to these cities of refuge were extremely wide. 32 cubits. That's 48 feet. That's as broad as a four-lane highway. And they were built with no impediments. Bridges were always open. These roads were well-maintained. And here's why. For this is the case of the manslayer who flees there, that he may live. For whoever kills his neighbor unintentionally, not having hated him in time past. You see, the cities of refuge were for the man who accidentally killed his neighbor. I mean, you're mowing your yard and you lose track of what you're doing. And you're closing your eyes and you're starting to pray. And you run over your neighbor and you, you, you butcher him there in the front lawn. Something accidental. You could then flee to the city of refuge, and then once inside, his angry relatives couldn't track you down. They couldn't harm you and kill you in return. They couldn't take vengeance on their brother's death once you got to the city of refuge and you held up there. Well, Moses lists an example of unpremeditated murder or manslaughter. He says a few better examples than I came up with. He says, as when a man goes to the woods with his neighbor to cut timber... And his hand swings a stroke with the axe to cut down the tree. And the head slips from the handle and it strikes the neighbor so that he dies. That kind of thing happens. He shall flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood, while his anger is hot, pursue the manslayer and overtake him, because the way is long and kill him, though he was not worthy of death, since he had not hated the victim in time past. It was just an accident. There was mercy for him. Verse 7, therefore I command you, saying, you shall separate three cities for yourself. Three cities east of the Jordan had already been established. Bezir, Ramoth, and Golan. After Israel takes possession of the land, west of the Jordan, they'll mark off three more cities, Kadesh, Shechem, and Hebron. Now if the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he swore to your fathers... And gives you the land which he promised to give to your fathers. And if you keep all these commandments and do them, when I, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to walk always in his ways, then you shall add three more cities for yourself besides these three, lest innocent blood be shed in the midst of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and thus guilt of bloodshed be upon you. Let me say a word about these cities of refuge. In a sense... All sin is murder. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Did you know that when you sin, you take your own life? The wages of sin is death. In a sense, every sin is a slow suicide. And that's why we all need a place to run when we sin where we can find safe haven, where we can avoid the consequences of that sin. And Jesus is that place of refuge. He is our city of refuge. For as long as we are in Christ, we are forgiven and we are safe from judgment. When we sin, we need to cut a beeline to Jesus as fast as we can. Why is it that when we sin, we often try to hide from Him? We need to do just the opposite. We need to run to Him. 
And this was why the road to the city of refuge was wide. It was well maintained. According to Jewish tradition, these roads were marked by signs with big large letters which read Miklach or refuge. Everything was done to make it as easy as possible for the guilty party to make their way to the place of refuge. And guys, this is our job. In a sense, we're all God's road crew. God wants to make it as easy as possible for people to find their way to Jesus Christ. And that's why our job is to keep the road cleared of misconceptions and the bridges of understanding open with unbelievers. And our lives are to be road signs with big letters pointing people to Jesus Christ. The cities of refuge were a wonderful picture of Jesus in at least 10 ways. I'll give them to you. The gates were never locked. And the way to Jesus is never barred. As long as you were inside the city, you were safe. If you left, you were on your own. And the same is true with Jesus. We need to continue to abide in Christ. You had to pick up and leave all your possessions to come. Likewise, to follow Jesus, you have to leave behind anything that might rival your devotion to Him. The city was within easy reach. Likewise, Jesus is only a cry of faith away. Refuge was available, but you had to come. The same is true with Jesus. You have to come to Him. Once inside the city, there were plenty of provisions. And likewise, all that a human heart might ever need is found in fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ. The cities of refuge were established in advance. And likewise, Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. He too was chosen beforehand. According to Numbers 35 verse 15, strangers and Gentiles as well as Jews were welcomed to come and find refuge in one of these cities. As they are in Christ, Jesus is open to anyone. And the death of the high priest granted total freedom. And it's because of the death of our high priest, Jesus Christ, that we've been granted a permanent pardon. And finally, the names of these cities, they all speak of blessings that are ours in Christ. You might write these down. Kadesh means holiness. Shechem means shoulder, and Jesus shoulders our burdens. Hebron means fellowship. This is why Jesus came to down the cross, that you could have fellowship with God. Bezir means a fortified place. That's what Jesus is for us. Ramoth means exaltation. If you come to Jesus, he'll exalt you. He'll make you join heirs with him. And Golan means joy. Hey, all the above are found in Jesus Christ. And notice the one crucial distinction between Jesus and the cities of refuge. The cities were for the innocent. But even the guilty, aren't you glad, can find refuge in Jesus Christ. Even the guilty. Verse 11. But if anyone hates his neighbor, lies in wait for him, rises against him and strikes him mortally so that he dies, and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall sin and bring him from there and deliver him over to the hand of the avenger of blood that he may die. Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from Israel that it may go well with you. In the case of premeditated murder, the death penalty was applied. Verse 14, you shall not remove your neighbor's landmark or his property pen, which the men of old have set. 
in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Once a fellow asked a farmer to walk off the borders of his land, the farmer asked, are you a buyer or a tax collector? It might make a difference. You see, the land was God's gift to the people. And as a result, the property boundaries were considered sacred. There was to be no tampering with the landmarks. One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. Boy, you, you give the guy the same punishment he was hoping to exact upon his friend. That'll deter crime. That'll deter these kinds of false witnesses and false accusations. It says, your eye shall not pity, but life shall be for life. Capital punishment is a command of God. Nowhere has it been revoked. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now remember the human tendency is not foot for foot. Stomp my foot, and not only will I want to stomp your foot, but I'll also want to punch you in the mouth. <laughs> so the human tendency is not foot for foot. Our tendency is one-upmanship. That's what our tendency is. And that's why God's laws sometimes seem harsh. They seem stern to our squeamish sensibilities and our soft on crime attitudes. But in the ancient world, the law actually set a tone of mercy and fairness. In a few days, Joshua is going to lead the people into the land against their enemies. But Deuteronomy 20 provides instructions here at the brink of battle. He says, when you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you up from the land of Egypt. <laughs> God commands the people to have courage. When you go out and you see more of them than of you, hey, have courage. Trust me. God wants men with backbone. And for those who lack it, who for some reason are weak need, God would just as soon weed them out and send them home. Why carry that excess baggage into battle? He says, so it shall be when you are on the verge of battle that the priest shall approach and speak to the people. And he shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are on the verge of battle with your enemies. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. And do not tremble or be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Then the officer shall speak to the people saying, What man is there who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man dedicate it. 
And what man is there who has planted a vineyard and has not eaten of it? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man eat of it. And what man is there who is betrothed to a woman and has not married her? Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in battle and another man marry her. The officer shall speak further to the people and say, What man is there who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return to his house, lest the heart of his brethren faint like his heart. And so it shall be when the officers have finished speaking to the people that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. As far as God was concerned, what mattered was not the size of the army, but the heart in the army. If you're squeamish, if you don't want to be here, we don't want you to be here. Go on home. That's how I feel about it. If you don't want to be here, why are you here? If you don't want to fight this battle with us, why are you here? It's not the size of the army, it's the heart in the army. In Judges chapter 7, this is going to be proven with the example of Gideon. You know, when it's time to fight, you don't want half-hearted people by your side. In the midst of battle, you're better off being by yourself than being with people who are afraid and that you can't trust. And to be honest, this has been my approach to ministry. I want people by my side who are totally committed and totally focused and totally passionate. If they're not, if they're half-hearted and lukewarm, then when the heat gets turned up, they're going to turn away and they're going to be more of a liability than a help. So even if you have to thin out the ranks, he says, it's better to go into battle with only those people who are up for the fight. He says, when you go near a city to fight against it, then proclaim an offer of peace to it. And it shall be that if they accept your offer of peace and open to you, then all the people who are found in it shall be placed under tribute to you and serve you. Now, this is looking off way into the future. This does not apply to the upcoming invasion of the promised land. For these Canaanites were so corrupt, so steeped in these demonic and occult practices that we've been talking about, that they were to be totally annihilated. This has been articulated before. Men, women, children, cattle, everything was to be exterminated. This is talking about situations yet future. Once they were in the land, once they were there and beginning to branch out, he says, now, if the city will not make peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God delivers it into your hands, you shall strike every male in it with the edge of the sword. But the women, the little ones, the livestock, and all that is in the city, all its spoil, you shall plunder for yourselves, and you shall eat the enemy's plunder, which the Lord your God gives you. Thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far from you, which are not of the cities of these nations. And again, he's speaking here of future battles. Boy, if the United States had done that in World War II, there wouldn't be a whole lot of Europe left, would there? Europe would be the, <laughs> the next 20 states of the United States of America. We didn't do that. I'm not saying we should have done that. I'm just saying we didn't do that. But it would be nice if the French and the Italians and some of those guys remembered what we did for them. That would be nice, wouldn't it? But of the cities of these people which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall let nothing that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them. 
These are the Canaanites he's talking about now. The Hittite and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. Just as the Lord your God has commanded you, lest they teach you to do according to all of their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. In other words, with the Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, you just need to say good night and take care of them once and for all. Nothing that breathes shall live, he says. Verse 19. When you besiege a city for a long time while making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. If you can eat of them, do not cut them down to use in the siege, for the tree of the field is man's food. Don't waste the fruit trees on battering rams. That's what he's saying. Only the trees which you know are not trees for fruit, you may destroy and cut down to build siege works against the city that makes war with you until it is subdued. This was an ecology-friendly view of warfare. God wanted Israel to take the long-term view. The need for food was ultimately more vital than the need for a battering ram. Destroy a, food soup, food, uh, destroy a city's food supply... <laughs> And it defeats the reason for taking the city. So he says, leave the fruit trees alone. Chapter 21. If anyone is found slain lying in the field in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess, and it is not known who killed him, they've ruled out the fact that it was death by natural causes, they know it was a murder, then your elders and your judges shall go out and they shall measure the distance from the slain man to the surrounding cities. In the case of an unsolved murder, someone had to take responsibility for the crime. Someone had to purge the land of the evil that had been committed. Atonement to God had to be made. And so it went to the closest city. And it shall be that the elders of that city nearest to the slain man will take a heifer, which has not been worked and which has not pulled with a yoke. The elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to the valley with flowing water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and they shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord by their word every controversy and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. Understand, there might be an unsolved murder, but there was never an unresolved murder. Maybe unsolved, but never unresolved. For if the perpetrator could not be brought to justice, then the city closest to the crime scene took responsibility for offering a sacrifice and for paying the penalty for that crime. Then they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor have our eyes seen it. Provide atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed, and do not lay innocent blood to the charge of your people Israel. An atonement shall be provided on their behalf for the blood, so you shall put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. 
God was etching into the minds of his people that sin was serious and that a price had to be paid even for an unowned sin that was committed. God is that serious about sin. And if you want to get the full scoop on the why you broke the heifer's neck and why you went down in the valley and all, Pastor James has some great insights on that. And you can talk to him after the Bible study. Verse 10. When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among them the captives, among the captives, a beautiful woman. I mean a foxy POW. And desire her and would take her for your wife. Now what happens when you find a gorgeous POW and you want to take her home with you? And you want to make her your wife. Well, then you shall bring her home to your house. And she shall shave her head and trim her nails. She shall put off the clothes of her captivity, remain in your house, and mourn her father and her mother a full month. In other words, she had to be willing to make a complete break with her past. She needed to be willing to start a new life. And the potential husband had to be willing to live with the woman for 30 days with no sexual interaction. This made sure that the attraction was more than lust, that the attraction was a a real desire for marriage. After that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. After the precautions had been taken, then you could exchange a VOW with a P-O-W. You got to be able to spell to get that. A V-O-W with a P-O-W. But what if the situation sours later? Oh my. Verse 14. And it shall be if you have no delight in her. She was not what you thought. Then you shall set her free. But you certainly shall not sell her for money. You shall not treat her brutally because you have humbled her. I mean, after uprooting the woman from her home, after bailing out on her being in your home, the least you can do for her is set her free, treat her with respect, show her some dignity. Verse 15. If a man has two wives, one loved and the other unloved. (laughs) And that is the recipe for an unhappy home, trust me, for a miserable experience. Oh boy. This is another reason why polygamy was never a good idea. God tolerated, but he never approved it. You remember Jesus even condemned polygamy. Remember the verse, no man can serve two masters. (laughs) Obviously, Jesus... Never meant for a man to be married to two wives. And they have borne him children, both the loved and the unloved. And if the firstborn son of her who is unloved, then it shall be on the day he bequeaths his possessions to his sons that he must not bestow firstborn status on the son of the loved wife in preference to the son of the unloved, the true firstborn. The rights of the firstborn were a big deal in ancient Israel, and they needed to be respected. 
He says, but he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. The firstborn always received a double portion of his father's inheritance. That means that if there were three sons, the inheritance was carved into four pieces. One piece was given to the two younger sons, and two pieces, a double portion, was given to the older son, and the rights of the firstborn were to be respected. Now, when my kids were younger, we basically made them obey. They had no choice. Kathy was bigger than they were. And so if she wanted them to be still, she could always just sit on them. (laughs) They would have to be still. But there came a point when my kids got to be bigger and stronger than their mom. The sitting on them thing wasn't working anymore. But by then, thankfully, by then, Kathy had done a great job in training them to show their mother respect. And so by that point, she could then control them with a word. But what happens when that normal development doesn't occur? And all of you who have a rebellious teenager know that that can sometimes happen. What happens, though, when this is a severe case? What happens when you've got this rowdy teenager, or worse, this 20-something kid running roughshod over his parents, actually abusing his parents, stealing their money, holding them captive in their own house? I know of situations where this is a real problem. Well, in ancient Israel, there was a solution to this. And it appears in verses 18 through 21. And I'm just going to read these verses And I want every teenager in the room tonight to listen and to basically just quake in your boots. This is now called fear therapy. It's good for you. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of... Notice it's a son. And I can understand, I've never had a rebellious daughter. Son? Well, if a man has a stubborn and a rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastened him, will not heed them, he's incorrigible, he he resists discipline, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him. I wish he had described exactly how we're allowed to take hold of them, but he just says to take hold of them and bring them out to the elders of his city, to the gate of his city, and they shall say to the elders of his city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. An older child who is incorrigible, who is callous to his mother and father's discipline, who is unresponsive to that discipline, who becomes a drain on the society, 
this individual is to be taken out. He's to be judged by the elders first. And then he's to be taken out and stoned to death. And we like, we lack, parents today lack the courage to give them a good spanking. There were no juvenile detention centers in Israel. It was no need. You know, the rabbis say that throughout the history of the nation Israel, this law was never put into practice because it was never needed. Apparently, the mere threat was enough to produce the desired results. I'm sure it was quoted many times. <laughs> but evidently, it was never carried out. And I hope you know, I do not advocate us reverting back to the old covenant. And here's why. Today, God's power, not the threat of punishment, is what changes hearts. You know, the old covenant provided an external standard, but it had no power to change the human heart. And thus, habits in childhood, you know, became fixed and rarely changed. And yet, under the new covenant... Oh, we have the power of Jesus Christ. We have a Lord who specializes in, in taking out hearts of stone and replacing them with hearts of flesh. We, we have a God who specializes in making hard hearts soft again and in changing people's lives, even the most unchangeable, stubborn, rebellious, hard people. God can change their lives. And if you don't believe it, just look at your pastor. If you don't believe it, look in the mirror tonight. God's changed our hearts. He can change other hearts. There is hope for an incorrigible kid. Jesus has the power to crack even the toughest nut. Don't forget that, especially when you're dealing with your kids. Well, verses 22 and 23 explain one of the reasons the Jews had such a hard time accepting Jesus as God's son and as their Messiah. It says, if a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day. Perhaps why they were so, one reason they were so uh, busy trying to make preparations with the body of Jesus, and they were trying to bury him before sundown in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. But you shall surely bear, part of the reason is because the Sabbath was coming, but this was another reason. But you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. And since Jesus hung from a cross, the Jews wondered, how could he be the son of God when he's obviously accursed by God? And it was a good question. Over in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Rabbi Paul, Rabbi Paul, gives us the answer to this thorny Jewish question. There Paul says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And he quotes Deuteronomy. The curse that Jesus bore, Paul says, was not his own. And that's why he could be God's son, our Savior. 
and still be accursed because the curse he bore was not his own. The curse he bore was our curse. Jesus was cursed so that we could be blessed. Jesus bore our sin so that we could be set free. And that's where we'll stop tonight. We'll pick up in chapter 22 next week. Thank you for your patience. I hope you've been blessed. I'm sure you've been given a lot to think about.